This week on Behind the Headlines, we go back to the George Floyd protests, to a case involving a police officer and one of our own journalists. Joining us on this episode, Andy Powells, partner at Honingman Law Firm. As I said, our guest today, Andy Powells, will be talking about the case with my co-host, the one, the only vice president of content, John Heiner. Thank you for that great introduction, Eric. It's always good to be here on Behind the Headlines with you. And today we have a somewhat special episode. I think I say that a lot. We have a lot of special episodes. Um, they're all special, but this one is a little self-referential. Um, there's a couple things in the news business. One is uh, we tend to write about breaking news and things that are current. And we typically don't follow a lot of stories over a long arc. And the second is we tend not to write about ourselves a lot. Um, that, that that's our preference, but also sometimes it's uh, it's unavoidable. And uh, in this case, we're going to be talking on this podcast about uh, uh, a criminal matter uh, that was tied back to the protests around the George Floyd death in 2020 uh, that just recently was resolved in, in a court in Detroit, a district court in Detroit. And so we have a special guest today. Um, our guest is Andy Powells. He's a partner in the litigation department at Honigman Law Firm. And uh, Andy was uh, worked with us in a case where one of our employees uh, was uh, assaulted uh, by a police officer during covering the George Floyd protests in Detroit. Andy, welcome to Behind the Headlines. Hey, John, thanks for having me. It's been a long, like I said, it was a long arc. Uh, there were Justice, the wheels of justice turned slowly in this case. Um, and uh, it was interesting, I think, a learning experience for us all. Um, uh, I was saying just before we got on here today that this was these were charges brought by Wayne County prosecutor against a Detroit police officer. And it's not like we uh, M Live sued civilly um, in civil court. This was a criminal matter. And so we had a you know deep interest in the case because we had an employee, a photographer uh, named Nicole Hester, who was covering the George Floyd protests. And she was there with other working journalists um, over the many hours of the evening of May 31st, 2020. And uh, it was a chaotic scene. I mean, it's pretty clear that uh, and, and a lot of things were happening in America at the time in these protests. And I think the public saw a lot of interactions between protesters and police where on both sides, um, you know, there was, you know, there, there's a lot to be said for people being put in chaotic situations and having to react to that. Um, but in this case, Nicole and two of her fellow photographers, the other two did not work for MLive, were trying to get back to their cars when they were shot uh, with riot pellets by a police officer from you know, maybe 20, 30 feet away. So from our perspective, our, 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 what was our role in, the, in this case, first of all? It's not like we brought the charges, but uh, what, what was at stake for us and for the press in this case? Yeah, you're right, John. Our role was very unique here. Uh, this wasn't a case where we even really had much standing in the traditional sense of, of that word. Um, our role was really to counsel Nicole um, and to get Nicole through this process, while also you know, being aware of the interests of MLive more generally and, and journalism and the freedom of the press more generally. Uh, this 
And, and I think it's important maybe to look at some of the, the positives that, that came out of this event um, very briefly before we start talking about the details of the criminal process, because you know, this took place, like you mentioned, the second night of protests in Detroit. There was no curfew in place. Uh, press like Nicole and the others she was with had nothing but a you know, credit card size badge, something that's going to you know, play an important role in the criminal case to identify them. Um, and because of this event, the Detroit police responded by issuing a curfew the next night to try and have a greater sense of control over the situation and issued press badges to better identify and protect members of the press from incidents like this. And it's notable that Detroit police did respond with an internal investigation and ultimately handed over this case to Wayne County for prosecution of the officer involved. Um, but, but our role was really in the background, right? Counseling Nicole, being with Nicole through interviews with Detroit police, interviews with the Wayne County prosecutor, and then ultimately you know, making sure that she was prepared for her various opportunities to testify in this matter. And the rare opportunity where me as a lawyer had to sit with my you know, hands under my legs in court, unable to, to say or do anything because we were really there just to, to observe and to be a friendly face for her. Right. And just for the sake of listeners here, I don't want to create a cliffhanger. Um, the reason we're here, even here talking about this today is last week, uh, the district court judge ruled uh, to drop charges or dismiss charges against the police officer. And we're going to get into the whys of that um, and also the implications on uh, the First Amendment and the role of the press and, and the rights of the press to be present at these sort of situations. Um, but you know, there was a lot, I mean, for charges to be brought in the first place, uh, you know, I don't think that happens in a vacuum, right? Right. It was something to be celebrated and something we did celebrate because it, it was a huge step. It was a huge ask of, you know, when this, the crime was reported, the incident was reported, um, for an investigation to take place and for charges to be brought was very, very unique and rare. Uh, we saw a number of incidents like this across the country last year arising out of these same types of circumstances. And you know, as far as I know, this was the only or you know, one of a handful of cases where charges were actually pressed against a police officer, just showing you know, sort of the uphill battle that journalists and anyone who's harmed by police at a protest face in finding accountability. Right. Because... The George Floyd case and, you know, Derek Chauvin was ended up being convicted in the death of George Floyd. But George Floyd was the victim. Uh, he was he was directly uh, in the interaction with the police officers in that incident. What we saw in the wake of that in the protests, um, and I think it was by the end of July of 2020, <clears throat> there had been something like 700 interactions between police officers and the press across the country where they'd either been detained uh, tear gassed, um, hit with projectiles, uh, hit with batons, uh, manhandled. Uh, we even had a case shortly after uh, the incident with Nicole and the other photographers where one of our reporters was dragged to the ground and arrested in Kalamazoo at, at a protest. That was in the daytime. All he was doing was filming um, and recording what was happening. And he was clearly marked as press. Interestingly, in that case, the next day, the the police chief in the city issued apologies and charges were dropped against him. Um, so we thought, 
you know, that was rare too. You don't see a lot of, of the taking responsibility um, from police agencies. But in, in the case of Nicole and the other working journalists, I think to your point it was rare that we see the criminal justice system hold a police officer accountable for their actions. So can you also, for our listeners, then take them back to that evening and talk about some of the circumstances that made this, I think, in the prosecutor's eyes, something worth pursuing? Yeah, of course. So this was, again, the second night of protests in the city of Detroit over the George Floyd death. And Nicole was there to cover the protests for MLive, paired with a reporter. Um, And she had been doing what she does in and what many photographers do in these types of situations, following the crowd. Uh, you know, she's her role isn't to really set up in one set spot and be stagnant. Her, her job is to follow the news and follow it where it goes. Um, and so over the course of several hours from late evening into you know, early morning, she followed the protest and how it developed. And that went from you know, organized, peaceful, uh, rallying at, at the police station and other locations, marching from location to location to, you know, what broke down based on all accounts to being violence on both sides, right? Protesters were, by all accounts, throwing projectiles of some sort at the police. Police were using tear gas, non-lethal force, anything to suppress the crowd. Um, as this escalated, Nicole and her colleagues decided it was time to go home. Um, that the, the risk-reward analysis between can we still get interesting, newsworthy photographs versus are we in danger had shifted to we are probably now in danger and we should go home. Uh, and so they were on their way back to their car um, shortly after midnight, walking down Woodward um, in Detroit near you know, some of the most commercial areas in Detroit. Uh, the Nike store, several restaurants, several apartment buildings where a number of people live, um, walking, avoiding interacting with continued protests, giving police officers plenty of room to continue to try and quiet the crowd and detain individuals who were refusing to leave. Um, And as they were walking to their car, uh, they stopped when they saw two police officers turn a corner. They put their hands up, identified themselves as press, and one of the police officers discharged a a non-lethal weapon that shoots some sort of rubber pellet um, at the three of them, striking all of them. Um, I know Nicole was hit several times in the face, the neck, the arms, the legs. Um, One of the others was hit in the face and was bleeding. Um, and, And that was essentially their entire interaction with police that night. They had a very short conversation with the police afterwards who essentially told them, get to your car and get out of here. And that's what they did. Yeah. And and there's a number of other, I think, factors that are going to weigh into when we talk about the judge's decision. One was that an order had been given to disperse to, I mean, protesters, mostly. I mean, the cops are dealing with the protesters. Obviously, the media is and there's a lot of media down there. It's not just them live. It's the free press, the news, AP. Um, Correct. So, you know, and number one, what does disperse mean? Does it mean go home? Um, I mean, so in the second part of that is when you're, and I'm going to speak from my 40 years experience, when you're a journalist, you're there to document what is happening. And I'm not saying that you are um, 
you know, beyond police orders, because you're not. As a matter of fact, we tell our employees to comply um, for both their own safety and to be in compliance with the law with police orders, direct police orders. A lot of times that means moving behind the police line or, or moving to a different location. Um, but they were literally leaving. They were going to their cars. Second, um, and we're going to talk about the judge's ruling, but she, she said there was some question of whether they could be identified as journalists. Well, all three have cameras hanging around their necks and camera bags. But they did have press badges, but like, you know, we addressed this in, in the week after that, and they came up with larger badges for the media. But it was kind of hard to argue that they were not journalists. Other police officers on the scene had acknowledged them as journalists, you know, and, and allowed them to do their work. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the third, which was irrefutable from the photos of you could see of the, the wounds on Nicole's, her hands were up in the air because she was had pellet marks on the undersides of her arms. Um, so there was, I think that was indisputable, um, that, that they had kind of surrendered themselves in the, in this this situation. So there's a lot of things that are alarming, I think to me, and should be alarming to the the general public because the role of the press, um, you know, this isn't just history in the making, but press exists as a check on government authority and to ensure accountability. That's the first amendment. That's why we're the only profession written into the constitution, (laughs) And, um, you know, I did get some emails and some pushback from readers after it happened saying, you know, boohoo, get out of the way of police. If you don't want to get shot sort of thing, you know, um, but there's a necessary tension. We have a role in, in society and in documenting what happens with, with our government agencies. So uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts yeah. on that, but I felt like, you know, they, they did what they were with professionalism, they did what they were there to do and were not uh, provoking or in other way uh, impeding police activities. Right. Yeah. I may, I might have some sympathy to the, you know, reader or listener comment that they should have stayed out of the way if there was, you know, any facts that showed that they or they or other journalists who were there were in the way, but all accounts showed that the press was following directions when given to them. They, you know, moved back when told to move back. Um, they a lot of them were behind the line of police. Um, and so there's just no, no merit to that in this situation. Um, and I think, you know, what you brought up, the dispersal order, um, and it, it was really troublingly vague, right? I mean, what is, what is disperse from an unlawful assembly in the city of Detroit mean for the journalists who are there, for people who live there, for the protesters who are trying, who are trying to go home? Um, mm-hmm. Do you have to leave the, the city boundaries? Do you have to leave the block where the police are? Do you have to leave the next block over? It's, it's very vague. And it, it certainly has you know, broader implications than even just you know, these three journalists going home, but for the people who could have been walking home from dinner or walking home from a show, um, what does it mean to disperse in, in an undefined area? Um, they were, this was an event that was happening in the streets, not a, an event that happened in a private forum where the press had to be credentialed to be in, people had to be ticketed to be in. This was happening in real time on the streets of Detroit without a, a clear boundary of this is the unlawful assembly, this is safety. Right. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, an MLive podcast. My guest today is Andy Powells, a partner in the litigation department at Honigman Law Firm. 
And Andy worked for MLive in representing our, our interest in the case brought against a Detroit police officer who discharged uh, riot weapons against journalists that included one of our MLive photographers during the George Floyd protests in May of 2020. And those charges were dismissed last week. And we're talking about um, the elements and circumstances behind that dismissal. Um, one thing I would note, Andy, um, we never got an apology from the police department or police chief, um, really any acknowledgement other than in the following week, they issued new guidelines about press identifications and they gave out big badges uh, to, to media. And, you know, I think some guidelines on interacting with police. And I should note that like just days later after they handed those out, a former MLive reporter who's working for the free press now in broad daylight was hogtied and pushed face down into the concrete while wearing her press badge, <laughs> you know, in, in, in some distance from the police. So I think what I, I want to use that as an entree is into the discussion of police immunity in situations of riots or other chaotic public gatherings. And it and ended up being the crux of the decision by the judge. And could you just tell us about our listeners about the Michigan statute that, that made it possible for, for this, these charges to be dismissed? Yeah. Yeah. And so first to, to tee it up procedurally, right. The, the officer at issue had been charged with a crime by Wayne County prosecutors. And the next stage in the prosecution was a preliminary exam where the prosecutor has to put up the evidence to show there's probable cause to charge this officer with the crimes he'd been accused of. Um, and the judge would decide, okay, yes, probable cause, this case can go to a jury for a finding of guilt or not guilty, or no probable cause, dismiss the case. In the lead up to this probable cause determination, the defendant police officer filed a motion to dismiss based on a Michigan statute. And I have it up and I'm going to read it because there's no real way to express how confusing this 1931 law is without hearing the words, because it's very, very confusing. And I say that as a lawyer who reads confusing legal text all the time. So the, the statute and it's uh, MCL 750.527 reads, if by reason of any of the efforts made by any two or more of the said magistrates or officers or by their direction to disperse such unlawful, riotous or tumultuous assembly or to seize and secure the persons composing the same who have refused to disperse, though the number remaining may be less than 12, any such person or any other person there present as spectators or otherwise shall be killed or wounded, the said magistrates and officers and all persons assisting by their order or under their direction shall be held guiltless and fully justified in law. And I saw your eyes start to glaze over there, John, as I read. I mean, that there's so many words there and so many commas, I don't even know where to begin. Um, but, you know, the crux of the defendant's argument and the, the argument that the judge adopted was that this statute provides that any police officer or individual acting in their direction, so, you know, you could be deputized on the streets by a police officer to assist in dispersing a declared unlawful assembly uh, is essentially immune from prosecution. So arresting a, uh, a participant in the protest after an unlawful assembly is declared results in an injury to the protester. The individual police officer is immune. Or in our circumstances, 
a reporter, photographer, walking to her car while an unlawful assembly is being quieted and dispersed around her when struck by a rubber pellet shot by a police officer. That police officer is immune because he was, according to the defense interpretation and the interpretation that the judge adopted, acting to disperse an unlawful assembly at the direction of, in this case, the chief of police. Well, while the nomenclature was eye glazing, the final <laughs> lines of that were pretty chilling, which is basically under extremely broad um, you know, definition of what is an illegal gathering, who is acting under the direction of the police, that any action is warranted and there's, they're completely indemnified from anyone being injured by their actions. And as ridiculous as this feels, and I don't mean just as a journalist, I mean as a citizen, it ended up being the crux, as I said, of the judge's decision. Yeah, yeah and I think you know, there, there's sort of two prongs to take the problematic approach of this opinion, right? And we, and we clearly disagree and we're disappointed with, with how the judge ruled here. Um, while acknowledging that it is a, a complicated issue that hadn't really come up before in, in law. So she was sort of taking an uncharted path here. Um, and on the one hand, like you said, for anyone, the average citizen who happens to be walking home or walking to the store or to a, a business, a restaurant, could get caught up and incidentally injured by police officers legitimately trying to settle an unlawful assembly. You know, that's that's one risk. There's the risk of sort of unfettered, you know, what wasn't an issue here, right? But sort of unfettered police action, lining up protesters and shooting them um, would seem to be immune from this type of statute. Um, and that's a, the nature of the language. Um, the prosecutor made what we thought was a very good argument that the statute only applied to those who were refusing to disperse. Um, and so you know, if you were an average citizen walking home, you decided to take a detour, even though you knew the protest was going on and there was an unlawful assembly, sure, maybe you refused to disperse and you could be arrested and shown home or something. But if you were just walking the streets, unaware, trying to get home, trying to go back, you know, the, the statute just shouldn't apply to you. You weren't refusing to disperse. Um, but the judge didn't, didn't uh, agree with that argument. And then there's also the you know, more sweeping First Amendment concerns as it, it comes to members of the press specifically. Uh, obviously, members of the press, as you mentioned, are called out specifically in the First Amendment and the Constitution as having a unique role. And they're there to document for today and for the future what happens. Um, and so you know, the, the prosecutor didn't really make any specific First Amendment exception type arguments to the statute. And the court didn't consider any. Um, you know, I think a couple of times she indicated she might be opposed to that type of argument. But you know, I, I think you know there has to be some sort of wiggle room in these type of laws for reporters and photojournalists where they are just doing their job to document for the rest of the citizenry what's going on. They absolutely have a right to be there. Our listeners may find interesting that occasionally, maybe every other year or so. We'll have some situation um, where there's unrest uh, or a crowd situation where police ask us if they could see our pictures because we're there documented. 
<laughs> so uh, obviously uh, the judge didn't uh, take that into consideration. But in this case too, I mean, if, if you, you go back to the wording of that statute, I mean, you could have a Kyle Rittenhouse situation where somebody yeah. who's there to quell or help keep the peace um, shoots three people and kills uh, a couple of them and say, well, that, I mean, maybe this, I don't know what the laws are uh, there, but that, that would be here in Michigan. That could be an argument that that person was acting under the direction of the police. So we're having a you know somewhat dispassionate conversation about the circumstances, but I'm going to just go off into opinion land here and say, I think this is an archaic, outdated, antiquated law that doesn't fit the circumstances in our society today. Uh, nor does it recognize what other courts have upheld as the right of the press um, in our society to do the job that we do. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the chilling effect on the press, focusing specifically on the impact of this ruling on the press, is important to think about, right? There are circumstances where, you know, you and your reporters and photojournalists as reporters understand that there are risks, right? There are physical risks to reporting conflict. There are legal risks to refusing to disclose sources sometimes, right? There are risks that you as members of the media know you are taking. But, you know, one such risk, at least from my perspective, that you shouldn't have to take is, you know, being arrested or being harmed by police while trying to document ongoing events like this. And, you know, you alluded to uh, a recent ruling uh, out of Minnesota, a federal mm-hmm. court there, that you know, issued a sweeping preliminary injunction against police interference with members of the media reporting in situations like this, um, recognizing that the, the press is vital to preserving the democracy that we have here. And without the press's ability to cover these very types of situations, uh, you know, we, we lose the ability to discuss it, to make informed decisions about the role of policing in America and in our communities. And you know, it, it, it really shows, you know, the type of analysis that could have been applied here, but wasn't. Right. And that was a federal judge and the situation in Detroit, not to diminish, but that was a, a district court judge in Detroit. And we were in the Detroit venue where the Detroit police operate. Um, I'd like to read from that opinion you just cited. At stake here are plaintiffs' First Amendment and Fourth Amendment rights, as well as the public's ability to learn about ongoing events of public importance. The potential harm arising from suppressing press coverage of the protests is great, and the public interest favors protecting these First Amendment principles. The state defendants correctly observe that it also is in the public's interest to control unrest, violence, and other chaotic situations. But I'd like to emphasize this part. But constitutional rights are not diminished during a period of chaotic unrest. And I mean, kudos to the judge. And also, I mean, obviously, uh, Minnesota is a little sensitive about, uh, you know, they they not only had... um, uh, the George Floyd case, they had Philando Castile, who was shot in his own car by a police officer after disclosing that he was armed. He had a gun in the club box, but he wasn't he had his hands in the air. So I, my point about it's time to change the law takes into account too evolving uh, public opinion about the role of police and communities 
I mean, obviously there's people on both sides of that discussion, um, thin blue line, the people with the flag support the police, but at the same time, there's a lot of communities trying to have new conversations about the role of police officers in their communities, uh, in community policing and accountability. And this 19, this law from 1930 or 1931 that grants such sweeping immunity and, and, and not even precisely worded, but very vaguely worded, that allowed someone with, whose hands were in the air to be shot and have no, uh, there's, there's no responsibility or accountability for that is, is disturbing. I think it's deeply disturbing and it warrants having uh, that law reconsidered or overwritten with, with new laws concerning, uh, as the Minnesota ruling uh, allows the press to do its jobs in these circumstances. Yeah, and you know, if we are looking for a, a silver lining to the disappointing results of, of last week, um, it, it is that this statute that I don't think many people knew about um, and has, like you said, sort of frightening implications has been brought to light. And you know, maybe these broader discussions will begin because you know this this was an example of the system working right most of the way, right? I mean, the Detroit police investigated. They handed this over to Wayne County prosecutors who decided that charges were appropriate. And then it hit the roadblock of this statute that sort of hadn't seen the light of day for almost 100 years. And, you know, the judge had to make a decision based on a poorly worded but broadly phrased statute. And, you know, we're disappointed, but the statute is what gave her this opportunity to rule that way. And I, I think it, it does merit a, a closer look at how this statute you know, whether it should be still on the books going forward. Right. Well, it's, it was a long year and a half. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah. You know, we, we've joked a lot about you were the, you were the first people I saw outside of my family pod um, during COVID and somehow it just kept going for a year and a half. Right. <laughs> yeah. We could do a whole other podcast on um, the, the bureaucracy of the, the legal system in Wayne County, but um, that's for another time. Uh, Andy, I want to thank you very much for your passionate um, involvement in this case and uh, upholding uh, our rights and principles to, to be there to, and, and supporting Nicole and all the employees at MLive and the work that we do. So thank you very much and hats off to you. You're very welcome, John. It was my pleasure. And thank you for joining us on Behind the Headlines today. And uh, thank you for having me. I hope to see you in better circumstances. Yes, me too. And there they go. A big thanks to Andy Powells for all the work he did to help us out on this. And as always, if you like what John and I are doing, like, subscribe, and share wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week, he is John Heiner. I am Eric Hulkerin, and this is Behind the Headlines.